Well, usually when we do these things, I don't get to use my own pulpit. It's like bringing your pillow on a vacation. It's kind of nice. So after uh, 17 venue changes, we end up back home. And so we're, we're good with that. I want to just have us begin immediately, turn to Psalm 23. And we're going to spend a lot of time in this text over the next three days. Psalm 23. And I know we're all familiar with the Lord is my shepherd, but we are using the legacy standard version a little bit more uh, faithful to the original text. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Well, our theme this year is something different than we've ever done before. A little bit unusual. Uh, We're talking about being behind enemy lines, which of course is taken from Psalm 23, 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And whether you want to acknowledge it or not, every one of you is a Christian man. You are in a spiritual battle. You believing that or not is irrelevant to the fact that battle is taking place behind enemy lines. Peter said that we're exiles in this world. In 1 Peter 2.11, Paul said that Satan is the god of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4. But Psalm 23 promises to the believer in Christ that God prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And it's interesting, I've spoken on spiritual warfare and Ephesians 6 and 1 Peter 2 and 2 Corinthians 4 and so on, numbers of times in my time in the ministry. But just in the past two, three, four years, it's actually much easier to convince men that we're in a spiritual battle because if you read the news, you go, oh, we're not a so-called Christian nation anymore. We don't have the same even just basic ethic that we used to. And now... Um, even the things that we used to agree with unbelievers on, things like freedom of speech, things like uh, freedom of economy, things like that, now those are becoming just touch points of even violence. And so I do have to say, the one great thing about the fact that our world is being turned upside down is that convincing you we're in a spiritual battle is not hard anymore. And in fact, what that does is it, it very much... Uh, excites our hearts to be well armed for that battle. So what's the key to spiritual conquest, to taking the spoils of war, which is the ultimate goal of our, of our time this weekend, to take the spoils of war, not just to defend against the, the enemy, but to, but to win and to take from that battle. The key to spiritual conquest is the Word of God. It is the sword of the Spirit. And so my goal for this weekend is to increase your ability to take the spoils of war and do this at a much higher level. How to find the glorious treasures of God's word for yourself. And, but with a slightly different emphasis. Because just as importantly, what we're going to spend a lot of time on 
is learning how to meditate on the scriptures. And that's a word that we don't use a lot. I'm going to spend a lot of time defining it tonight. But meditation on the scripture is not just, hmm, I think I'll think about this for a while. This is something that that alters your mind, alters your heart. It cleans sinful attitudes. It, It purifies your heart. It replaces worldly selfish thoughts with heavenly motives and godly actions. I guarantee you that every Christian man that seems to be struggling in various areas of life that's exactly what they need to be meditating on. They, they, those are exactly the topics that they need to be searching out and not just going, hmm, that was interesting, that four minutes I had in the Word of God, but digging deeply into your own heart and mind through the Scriptures, and that's what we're going to do. And to do that, what I thought we would do this time around, and this is a little bit odd, I guess, but um, it seemed to go well with the women, so we'll see what happens with you guys. We're going to use Psalm 23 as an example. And what I'm going to do is kind of walk through the process of growing in knowledge, which translates into life-changing increases in Christ-likeness. And I believe that if you'll take this to heart, your life will never be the same. Your walk with the Lord will never be the same. And, And I'll tell you the ones I'm most concerned about, if you've been at Grace Bible Church for 10 and 20 years, um... Be aware that this is different than anything we've ever done. This is just not another series of sermons. This is something where I'm asking all of us to elevate our game to a higher level. Because what this is, is not just increasing the amount of knowledge of the Bible you have. There's lots of ways to do that. But that's our starting point. But the bigger picture is learning to meditate on the scriptures such that it's it's a cleansing effect. It cleans sinful attitudes. It strengthens your genuine trust in the Lord. Or to put it this way, to teach your mind how to think on the things of God. That when you open your Bible and then close it, that closing it doesn't end your thoughts of God throughout the day and throughout the week. That's simply the beginning. My hope is to help you learn to replace worldly selfish thoughts with heavenly motives and, and more naturally godly actions. So my goal this weekend is not to try to teach you everything there is to know about Bible study methods um, I'm always amazed when somebody asks me the question, you know, after church, they'll say, so how do you study the Bible? I'm like, Well, I spent eight years in school learning to do that. Um, so in the next five minutes, I'm probably not going to explain it all to you. So I'm not going to try and teach you everything there is to know. I couldn't do that anyway. Nor do I want this just to be kind of a, an academic set of lectures that don't lead to heart change. I, I'm hopeful that by the time we're done Saturday afternoon, you are laid bare. And you see everything in yourself. You see, the, you see the strengths God has given you. You see the weaknesses and you know what to do with them. I'm not going to try to teach you to replicate everything I do as a pastor. I just want you to be able to learn the word of God systematically in a very organized fashion such that you can then meditate on the word. It changes your mind, changes your heart, changes your attitudes, changes your motives, changes your character and your behavior. And so... I'm not just trying to increase your knowledge, although that's the starting point. What I'm trying to do is increase your ability to be changed by it. Now, the rest of our sessions will all follow a similar format, basically in three parts. And so these aren't exactly sermons. In three parts. First of all, I'm going to teach some aspect of Psalm 23 that corresponds with the steps we're at in in learning how to study a given passage in depth for yourself. The second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to deconstruct what I just did. It'll be sort of like a behind the scenes of what you just heard. I'm going to give you the blueprint. 
And then last, and we'll spend about half of our time total on this, we're going to consider some appropriate ways to meditate on what we've learned so far in Psalm 23, the implications to your heart, to your mind, the applications to life which need to be implemented for spiritual battles to be won. And that will serve as our example on how to do that in your own text. And just for the sake of integrity, so that you know this, um, all of the meditations we're going to walk through in Psalm 23, I didn't get a single one of them out of a book. I got them out of my own study of Psalm 23 and my own time in prayer, my own handwritten notes, which I transferred over uh, to, to be typed up so I could save them. But this is not academic for me. Psalm 23 just sifted its way through my heart as well, and I hope it does for you. So that'll be our usual time. Tonight is a little bit different. We need to cover some introductory thoughts, and so our message tonight is simply gearing up. We're, we're just getting ready, gearing up, and so let me tell you how to navigate these messages this weekend before we dive into gearing up. The, the two tomorrow and the first one on Saturday are kind of the core of all this. But let me tell you how to navigate this. And, and I'm, I, I've added this part because about five minutes from now, uh, if I don't add this part, you'll be, you'll be like this, going, what have I gotten myself into? And unlike the women who were trapped in Cambria two and a half hours away, um, you can drive home. So that's why I'm telling you this, to, to hang out here. First of all, the amount of content I'm going to give you is overwhelming. And that is intentional, and that's okay. That's why you've been provided with a note packet. It contains all the information I'm going to teach you regarding the deconstruction or the blueprint of what we're doing. The notes include all the sample meditations I'm giving you from Psalm 23 as you go. So if you feel overwhelmed initially, just know you have all the needed information in writing. It's already there. Second way to navigate this, let me give you three strategies to get the most out of these sessions. The first one, carry away big picture thoughts first. Don't try to memorize every single detail as we're going here. Carry the big picture. Carry the the ones that will motivate you to go back. Speaking of which, the second strategy, I would urge you to commit right now that in the next week or so, you're going to read through this whole packet once or twice again while it's still fresh in your mind. And then third, I want to encourage you to engage your mind this weekend. This will not be a passive activity. The relaxing part of our men's fellowship will be at the meals and the recreation. It will not be in here. Um, this, is, this is the time to sharpen your mind. And then we can go dull it with sugar in a little while. But, so engage your mind. This is not something where you're just going to listen and kind of try to catch it by osmosis. Then one more way to navigate this. And this hasn't happened yet, but we're working on it. Our writing team is in the midst of creating a, a book and a corresponding workbook based on everything we're going to do this weekend. So that the book will actually give you the content of all the messages. The workbook will give you the opportunity to work through a passage, three different passages of Scripture actually, um, literally with, with directions. Next, do this. Now do this. And so know that that's coming. We're hoping in the next couple of months... Um, Some of the ladies in the women's ministry are going to beta test it for us and and make sure it works right. So for tonight, I want to address three topics to gear up for being behind enemy lines. First two we'll spend a short amount of time on. The last one we'll be heavy on. Dedication, organization, and meditation. Meditation we're going to spend a lot of time on because I need to teach you what that is and then it'll be easier the rest of the weekend. So dedication... 
I think it's a sad commentary of the church, generally speaking. I'm not speaking of Grace Bible Church, but uh, like all churches, we tend down those roads that have deep ruts in them. But the church of Jesus Christ, generally speaking, the men are harder to motivate towards spiritual greatness than the women are. That has been the case since the people who followed Christ around were mostly women. That has always been the case. I've always prayed that Grace Bible Church is the exception to that. Um, So because of that, there really has to be a decision that you make, a determination that studying the Word of God, using these tools, meditating on what you learn is going to become a part of your life. And now if that scares you just a little bit, you can, at the very least, make a commitment to yourself that you're going to do one Bible study project. Everybody can do that. One go-around with everything you learned this weekend. And I'm, I'm convinced that as this becomes part of your own life, you're going to see the value to your heart, to your mind, to your actions, and you won't be able to stop at that point. And one way to think about that is choosing to have various phases or, or uh, stages in your time with the Lord that perhaps... One month, you're just doing quantity of reading. Uh, Another month, you're taking three verses and doing an intense Bible study on it. And by the time we're done tonight, you'll see that that doing this under six weeks will be pretty tough for one passage. So, So if you think, how can I spend that much time? You'll know how by the end of our time tonight. Whatever you decide to do, I just want to encourage you with this. Throughout Christian history, consistently, the most faithful believers, the most effective believers, and certainly the most joyful believers are always the ones who have an unquenchable desire for the Word of God. And they're not waiting around for somebody to feed it to them. And this goes beyond just hearing even the very best of history's preachers. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I like to read church history and the testimony of some of history's greatest preachers, Charles Spurgeon, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, John MacArthur, they'll all say the same thing that the regular exposition of the Word of God from the pulpit in the healthiest of churches causes an avalanche of spiritual desire that's carried home. That, that in other words, you're not growing just because you're listening to effective sermons. You're growing because that's just the launching pad for you, the launching point. So why should you study the Bible for yourself? I mean, we have, you, 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 we have so many Bible study books and apps and programs, everything you can go through why sit down and do the hard work of digging out these treasures yourself? Let me give you a few reasons, and this is part of dedication. The first one is communion with God. Communion with God, you're looking deeply into the words that he wrote. I'm doing a Q&A on this coming Sunday evening, and um, I always get a few questions about how can I know God better. I'm going to answer that in the next 30 seconds. There's no mystery to knowing the Spirit of God. Read and know the words of the Spirit of God. There's no mystery to knowing the Son of God. Read what the Bible calls the Word of Christ. There's no mystery to knowing God the Father. Read the words inspired by God the Father. By the way, communion with God, uh, when, when, when people tell me I'm just having trouble knowing what to say when I pray, you know what that tells me? They're not spending any time in the Word. If you're communing with God then any problems with prayer you might have shrink away. It's another reason, personal conviction. Personal conviction, the process of making yourself slow down from the usual pace of maybe cramming in a few chapters of the Bible here and there, it gives your mind and heart time to decelerate 
and, and have what you're learning fill in the cracks in your heart and mind. And you guys who are married, you understand this with your wives. That if you tell your wife, if she says, I'd like to have a conversation with you, and you say, you have 90 seconds, ready, go. You can't have a meaningful conversation. You know that when your wife is making a cup of tea and says, can we talk, that it's time to settle in, right? It's the same thing. Personal conviction doesn't happen because we're in a hurry with the Lord. And we don't take any time to think through what we just learned. I'm convinced that many Christians are are lacking and slacking in their own sanctification because they never stop to do self-evaluation, to look in the mirror, to take that time to use the Word of God to reflect back to yourself. Here's a third reason to study the Bible for yourself. Joy in the Lord. Joy in the Lord. I, I have this uh, habit. It's just a little hobby of mine of going to websites of churches that I wouldn't set foot in if it was the last one on planet Earth. But for some reason, it's like, I don't know, hitting your head against the wall. It feels good when you stop. Um, and I was on one today that may or may not be on White Lane down the road um, I just discovered it. I discovered it. And, um, oh man, it looked good. It looked wonderful. Everybody was so happy. Um, the, the, the music worship leaders had the, the God ordained, uh, the God ordained uh, posture of this. You know, that's, apparently that's what makes you happy. It doesn't work. American evangelicalism is diseased and cancerous, cancerous with, with sappy sentimentality, with these quick fixes and all the things. And they don't use the word worship service. They always call it an experience. That that's what we're looking for. Immediate good feelings for that just punch that helps you get through the week. But what does that miss out on? It misses out on the slowness and the lengthiness of time in letting the word of God melt into to the heart. Another church here in town advertises short but meaningful messages. You, you can have one or you can have the other. You cannot have both. The word of God is not meant to be packaged neatly and digested quickly. Joylessness. You might be the type of person that shows up to one of those typical American evangelical churches and you're happy You have happy feelings for a day or two, but that's not joy. Joylessness is the product of not taking the time to soak, learn, and seriously delight in the Word of God. One more reason to study the Word for yourself, encouragement to others. Encouragement to others. And not to, you know, Brandon said we're going to do a lot of punching, so I may as well throw the first punch now. One of the most discouraging things to me as a pastor is when a wife after a Sunday morning or, a, or maybe sends me an email, says, I love to study the Word of God, but it's discouraging to me that my husband doesn't. That my husband is, is not in the Word. And, and uh, I've had women say, I try to hide my study time so that the children won't think that I study the Bible more than their daddy does. That's a discouragement. But if you're studying the Word, that's an encouragement. Once you get into the habit of taking time to digest and learn a short passage, having meditated on it, you'll own it. It'll be yours for a lifetime. You'll you'll bleed that passage. The applications, the implications. And and what's going to happen is you're going to be bursting to share that knowledge with others. You won't be able to help it. Now, I want to move on. I want to get very practical to help you set yourself up for success. 
And that requires our second topic for tonight, and that is organization. I'm going to divide our thoughts on organization into two basic parts. Arranging your life and arranging your resources. And this is just, just super practical, but I, I think, let me put it this way. Um, if any of you guys are like me, I love tools. My favorite ones are the ones that plug in and make noise. Those are just, just what I love. Um, I'm shocked at how many men will devote their entire garage or backyard or golf course, whatever, to all the things they love. And they say they love the Lord, but all they have is one tattered Bible that their great-grandmother handed down to them. They don't have a place in their house that they study the Word of God. Um, So what is really important to you? Well, I want to help you make this actually important. First of all, arranging your life. Like any new commitment, the decision to study the Word doesn't happen on its own. Your level of commitment will show in how much effort you put in. It's like anything else. We do what's most important to us. Uh, Somebody... Somebody uh, has, has said um, that your calendar reflects what's actually important to you. Your space also reflects what's important to you. So let me give you some practical considerations in arranging your life. The first one is a reserve time. A reserve time. Sacrifice something if necessary to reserve time. And I would say this also. It's, it's much better to have longer chunks of time. A minimum of an hour. It takes time for your brain to get in that mode. So saying that, well, I'll study the Bible 15 minutes a day, that's not effective. Saying I'll study the Bible for four hours a week at one shot, that's effective. Um, So make a schedule. Mondays from 4 to 5.30. Wednesdays from 10 o'clock to 11. Um, Give up an hour of sleep. What is the trade-off? Do you really need that hour? Maybe, maybe not. You do need the Word of God. So whatever it takes, reserve some time. Don't say, well, I'll get to it. We're men. We don't ever get to it, right? Think about the duration of your first project. Make a commitment for a time or a number of journal pages that you're going to have filled. But just just have a a set goal. It'll be helpful. Uh, What are the family dynamics that are necessary? You need to get your wife's support, your kids' support. You need to maybe have a family meeting to enlist their support and let them know just so you know, on, on uh, Thursday evenings from 7 to 9, that's my time to study um, my passage. And so just letting everybody know that that's what's happening. And then one more way to arrange your, your life is a dedicated space. And I, I cannot emphasize this enough. It might just be a bookshelf, but preferably a flat space that's only for studying the Word of God. Not a space where you pay your bills or watch Amazon movies or whatever you get your head into the habit of knowing this is the space that I meet with God. The concept of sacred space in Scripture goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Sacred space says this is space only for the Lord. Now, I I know not everybody lives in in homes big enough to do this, but you can get creative. Um, Two TV trays, a small rolling cart that you take in and out, whatever it has to do, you have to do. My favorite example of this was Ruth Bell Graham she, whatever house that they lived in, she and her husband, Billy, they always had, she had an old door that she put on two file cabinets that she got at a yard sale. That was her space. I actually started doing this in college. I had a little desk in my dorm room and I made a decision to never use that for homework, even though I was there to go to school. I used that little desk only to study the Bible. And then I would go elsewhere, the library or whatever to do homework. Now let's talk about arranging your resources. I am not trying to get you to buy a library. That might end up being the result, but uh, I'm not telling you to do that. 
My goal for you is actually the opposite of that. I, I want you using minimal outside help and, and really digging into the Word, meditating on the Word of God deeply and not saying, well, as soon as I buy these 400 books, then I can begin this. Not at all. But here's just a little starting point, and I've given you this list. A good Bible translation that you like reading. Uh, don't have a Bible that's hard to manage. Get one that you're comfortable with. A study Bible, preferably several. And I hate to say this, but study Bibles are really cheap online if you just get them used um, because they've sat on a shelf and somebody needs to pay a bill so they sell a study Bible. Um, theological resources are, are fairly cheap, actually. A Bible handbook and dictionary. Sometimes these come in one, one volume. Sometimes they're multiple volumes. These are pretty inexpensive online and Bible handbooks and dictionaries are pretty reliable because they're not taking a theological position. They're just giving facts from the scriptures. And then only as needed, some commentaries. Uh, study Bibles are shortened commentaries, so those might be sufficient for you. They might be very useful. If you're going to get a one commentary uh, series, I would get the Bible Knowledge Commentary by Walvoord and Zuck. That is the best two-volume Bible commentary ever done. Probably won't be ever repeated at that level. What else do you need? Some sort of handwriting medium. Now, this is not me just being old-fashioned. Um, this is proven by experience and by research. Handwriting is good for the mind. It makes you chew on thoughts. It makes you think through things. And the action of writing implants ideas more deeply and effectively into your heart. Um, what you're going to be writing is the meditations on the text that you study. Ideally, they ought to be handwritten first. There is just something about it that is just more meaningful. And when you go back and read it in your own handwriting, you remember, oh yes, that's what I told myself about this. And then you need some sort of organizational medium, an iPad, laptop, whatever you use to compile information for, uh, that leads you to the meditation on the text. And I gave you a list of, I believe it's in the notes, I'll give it to you if it's not, some supplementary spiritually dense devotional reading. Now when I was growing up, dense meant dumb. What I mean by dense is packed with lots of information in a short period of time, um, things like uh, My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers. Not always theologically accurate, but you guys are, are acute. Uh, you're, you're smart enough to plow through that. Valley of Vision, these Puritan prayers. Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. And some others I've listed here. The reason for this is it's helpful to have something meaty and spiritually very, very deep to get your mind and heart flowing in deeper waters. Just something to read, maybe a page or two before you start your study each session. Now, what are you going to do with the results of your study? By the time you're done with your first study, you're going to be dying to share this with somebody. So at least maybe your wife, kids, grandkids, friend. Don't worry about that at this point. Let the joy be in the communion you share with the Lord during these times of study and meditation. Once you, once you get into the groove of this, I, I promise you it will be the best part of your life. And you'll wonder how you ever got along without this beyond just, just reading your Bible. So I want to spend the rest of our time, and I've gone pretty quickly through all of that because I want to move on to our third topic, and that is meditation. I need in the, la in the next 30 minutes or so to do a fast, intense tutorial on the subject of biblical meditation. That's the end game for the weekend, for you to sink your teeth more heavily into having the Word of God weave itself into your heart and mind like, you, like you've never seen before. 
Now, I know that we like to tend to jump to the how-to. Whenever somebody came up with the idea of a quick start guide, you know, you open up the box of something and there's the thick manual and then the quick start guide. I always go for the quick start guide um, because I want to plug it in and turn the thing on and see what it does. I know that's our tendency and we will get to that. I'll tell you when we get to the how-to. But we need to do the manual, at least flip through it pretty quickly. The Puritan Nathaniel Renu, he wrote this. Little meditating makes lean Christians of little life, little strength, little growth, and of little usefulness to others. And so let's lay a foundation for this. Let me just very briefly give you the, the scriptural basis for meditation. A lifestyle of meditation we see in numbers of passages. Psalm 1, 1 and 2 that on the law of God, a godly man meditates day and night. This word for meditates in Hebrew, it means to speak to yourself, to mutter to yourself, to, to ponder something. The same thing, Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. And what's the result? You'll be careful to do what's written in it. It's the same word as Psalm 1, verse 2. Psalm 119, verse 97, How I love your law, it is my meditation all day. This is a slightly different word for meditation. This, this talks about thoughtful contemplation that's also inward praise to the Lord. This is the result of these thoughts is that you begin praising the Lord very naturally in your spirit. There's a clear pattern in Scripture of taking the Word of God and chewing on it continually in the mind. And we could spend hours on this. And so let me just kind of hit some highlights. Let me give you some nuances of meditation. How about the nuance of dwelling? Dwelling on these things. Psalm 119, 148. My eyes eagerly greet the night watches that I may muse on your word. That's the the psalmist saying, I can hardly wait until it's dark and nothing's happening so I can just think about the Bible. Muse is the same word as meditation back in 119.97, to inwardly praise. Philippians 4.8, probably our, our best known verse on meditation. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, and you know the rest of the verse, dignified, right, pure, lovely, commendable, anything excellence, anything worthy of praise, consider these things. This is the flagship verse on meditation in the New Testament. To consider these things, it means to tell yourself something. It's the act of speaking inwardly to your own heart, of speaking truth to yourself. If you've ever heard anybody say you should listen to yourself, that's a lie. You should speak to yourself. You speak truth to yourself. That's dwelling. How about the nuance of evaluating? Hebrews eleven nineteen. speaking of Abraham, he considered... That God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received them back. This is the New Testament commentary on the mind of Abraham when God commanded him to sacrifice his son Isaac in what John MacArthur calls the greatest spiritual trial in the whole Bible outside the cross of Christ. That Abraham considered, it's the same Greek word as Philippians 4.8, to speak inwardly, to tell truth to yourself the theological certainty of the resurrection to get through this trial. How did Abraham come to that conclusion? He came to it with meditation. God promised that from Isaac would come a nation. He commanded me to kill Isaac. I will do that. The only conclusion I can come to from meditating on those truths is that God is going to raise Isaac from the dead. How about Hebrews 12.3? 
the idea here of evaluating. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary, fainting in heart. Consider, this is a longer form of the same word. It has to do with making a careful calculation, being extremely accurate in your assessment. And I love this one. Because considering him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, the context really is your suffering, the discipline the Lord is giving you. And it's to assess it carefully. That before you say, when, when, I can't believe I'm having to go through this, then da 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 Hebrews 12, 3 says, consider carefully, before you open your mouth anymore, him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself. That's evaluating. That's evaluating the truth of the scriptures. How about the nuance of focusing? Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Set your mind on things above, logically is translated the things above, but it's just set your minds on the above. That's what it is in Greek. Why do you do this? It's because of Christ's work of salvation to bring you the glory. That's why you set your mind on things above. The verses continue in Colossians 3, 3. For you died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. He's, he's saying, set your mind upward. How about the nuance of pondering? After the events around the birth of Jesus, Luke 2.19 rather says, but Mary was treasuring all these things in her heart, pondering them in her heart, treasuring all these things, pondering them in her heart. To treasure something, this word means to preserve it, to keep it. You, you, ever, uh, you guys remember this? It, back in the days when you had to actually memorize these things called phone numbers? And somebody gave you a phone number that you needed to, to memorize. Those seven numbers, you were blazing those on your brain if you only had one chance. That's what treasuring is. I'm going to blaze these things on my brain. And then pondering, this is an interesting word. It's the idea of taking a bunch of facts and compiling them together to make a conclusion. So what is Mary doing? She's pondering the fact of the virgin birth. She's pondering the fact of all the dreams that have happened, all the circumstances that are uh, clearly divine, pondering. How about the nuance of reviewing or remembering? Revelation 2.5, Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. This is to the church at Ephesus. Hebrews 13.7, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. So remembering the truth, reviewing the truth. I, I love Second Peter 1 because Peter says some of my favorite words to hear as a preacher that I'm telling you the same thing over and over again by way of reminder. I say, aha. Somebody says, well, you've preached that passage before. That's right. And Peter would have done the same thing. Remember. What does it mean to meditate? We're starting kind of high and coming down. I want to talk about grasping biblical meditation. I want to go to the Puritans because they're really some of our greatest examples. The Puritans were originally the English pastors and believers in the 15th century and beyond who wanted to purify the church. That's why they're called Puritans to be thoroughly biblical. They wrote extensively about the word of God. Why? Because they meditated extensively on the word of God. The joke about Puritans is, is why use 10 words when 10,000 will do? But the fact is, is they meditated 
on the Word of God and they practiced biblical meditation. They considered meditation the supreme means of grace, that that was the way that you achieve true joy and peace in their relationship with God. It was the immediate outworking of their personal Bible reading and the preached Word of God. The Puritan sermons tended to be long, tended to be very detailed. And why is that? Because unlike the average modern sermon, which attempts to deliver one easy bite-sized idea, the Puritan preacher assumed, like I'm assuming with you guys, that his people were going to rethink and rethink and rethink everything he just said. And so you would walk home from, the, from a church service and the father of the home would say, let's go over all the points that the pastor went through. And they would talk about it over lunch and over dinner. At some point in the church's history, a movement began to make church and to make the spiritual life more user-friendly, more relaxed, with the idea that it's off-putting to the average church member to focus on Christian duties and the, the effort necessary to cultivate a thriving walk with the Lord. But Jeremiah 6.16 tells us otherwise. Thus says Yahweh, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. So how do you grasp biblical meditation? Let me, let me give you some definitions. I'll give you my definition first and then I'll give you some good ones from Puritans. My little definition is the purposeful filling of your mind with divine truth such that your mind, attitudes, and behaviors are more governed by God's thoughts. It's, it's, I think the key word is purposeful. It's something you do on purpose. The purposeful filling of your mind with divine truth such that your mind, attitudes, and behaviors are more governed by God's thoughts. I'm giving you some other definitions here. The Puritan Edmund Calamy. He said that meditation is dwelling upon the mercies we are receiving, the chewing upon the promises. You know what these Puritan farmers used to say meditation was? They used to say it's like the cow chewing the cud. That that's what biblical meditation is. That you get a truth in your mind and you just chomp on it all day long. William Finner said this, Meditation is a settled exercise of the mind for a further inquiry of the truth and so affecting the heart. John Ball, Meditation is a serious, earnest, and purposed musing upon some point of Christian instruction tending to lead us forward toward the kingdom of heaven and serving our daily strengthening against the flesh, the world, and the devil. Puritans had an interesting way of speaking of biblical meditation. The way they spoke of biblical meditation is they said that meditation is that sweet place somewhere between reading the Bible and prayer. Is it prayer? Is it Bible reading? It's that sweet place in between where the two meet. Your thoughts are purposefully inward and they're purposefully upward. I think this is important. What is, let me tell you what biblical meditation is not. It's, it's a word that we need to capture back. Biblical meditation is not long contemplation of theological speculation, of trying to, for example, figure out the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility instead of simply contemplating the truth of that eternal principle. You're not, you don't figure anything out. Meditation is not where you gain knowledge. Meditation is where you chew on the knowledge that you gain. 
It is not the figuring out of truth outside the divine revelation of Scripture. It's not that you're trying to hear from God or receive some sort of spiritual zap from heaven. It's only based on truth you've already acquired from Scripture. Meditation is not an intellectual exercise that's divorced from practical application. You ask any Puritan, what's the point of meditation? He would say, well, to change your life, of course. Practical application is the whole point. To train your mind and your heart and your actions to reflect the holiness of God. Thomas Watson said this about the application. He said, let your meditation be reduced to practice. Live out your meditation. Meditation and practice, like two sisters, must go hand in hand. The end of meditation is practice. And probably the one you're most familiar with, meditation is not the practice of any sort of mysticism attempting to ignite some vague feelings of ooh and ah in you in mysterious spiritual contemplation. This is not about generating emotion, uh, which is interesting that we're talking about this right now uh, at a men's fellowship because generally speaking, church-sponsored men's fellowships like this are all about trying to generate some sort of mysterious ooh and ah. And if you have enough of an ooh and ah, you get a rubber bracelet to say that you're a man of God or something like that. That's not meditation. In fact, there's a very basic difference between occultic, satanic, humanistic meditation and biblical meditation. Here's the difference. Humanistic, occultic meditation makes self the focus and you're trying to empty your mind in order to find some sort of peace. Biblical meditation makes God the focus and fills the mind with truth in order to think God's thoughts as a matter of habit, a matter of course. You see the difference? Any meditation that talks about just empty your mind, we're called to do the opposite. No, I'm meditating by filling my mind. This is a new topic for some of you, so I'm going to take some time to try to convince you, and so I want to give you um, some biblical meditation reasons. Now, I did have 17, but it was recently joked that I always use 17. So I'm going to give you 12 reasons and five bonuses. The first reason, this is the pattern of godly people. This is the pattern of godly people. Here's a short list. Isaac, Joshua, David, Solomon, Mary, Timothy, Paul, Jesus are all recorded as having spent time thinking about truth. The second reason, meditation is commanded. It's commanded of the follower of God. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Haggai 1.5, one of the greatest verses in the Old Testament on meditation. So now, thus says Yahweh of hosts, set your heart to consider your ways. That's meditation where you're comparing the word of God to yourself and seeing the differences. Here's a third reason. Meditation accelerates your wisdom. It accelerates your wisdom. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 99, says, I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I perceive more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. There's a fourth reason. Meditation assists your prayers. I'm not a big believer in trying to instruct people how to pray. Now I know you say, aha, Matthew 6, Jesus said, here's how you ought to pray. If you look very carefully, he didn't tell you how to pray. He told you an outline for prayer. 
And yes, you can say the Lord's Prayer if you want to, but it was an outline for prayer. The expectation in Scripture, as you look at the great prayers of Scripture, they are reflective of a man or a woman who has meditated on the Word of God. The prayer of Mary in the opening uh, verses of Luke uh, 1 and 2 is a theological masterpiece because she had already been in the Word of God extensively. It assists your prayers. Psalm 143, 5 and 6, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you have done. I muse on the works of your hands. If you're meditating on the word, you simply have more things to talk about with the Lord. It's another reason. Meditation helps you obey Ephesians 5, 16. Ephesians 5, 16, I think every man should know this verse that we are to redeem the time because the days are evil. That you use every day to the fullest. You don't waste time. You don't waste thoughts on idiotic things. You're ever driving down the road and you realize that the last 30 minutes you've been thinking about, you know, I wonder if, wonder if Babe Ruth or Hank Aaron was the better hitter. Who cares? How about using that time to think on the Lord? It also fights the urge to continually fill our, mind, fill our minds with uh, junk from social media and random stimuli all over the place. Here's a sixth reason. It's a means of pleasing God. Psalm 19.14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. This means that what you think is actually an act of worship. Just choosing to think the thoughts of God. This is the seventh reason. It fights spiritual hypocrisy. Psalm 119.113 says, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. What does meditation do? Meditation makes you the same person in private that you are in public. Because you're thinking the same thoughts. God's thoughts are habitually with you all the time. Now, people make jokes about, um, about pastor's kids. That, you know, the pastor's kids are the ones that are all, always messed up. Sorry, Joel, I know you're right here. But the reason pastor's kids are messed up is because their dads are different people in private than they are in public. And for you, it's the same thing. It fights against spiritual hypocrisy because you're training your mind to think biblical thoughts. It fires up your affection for God. There's an eighth reason. It fires up your affection. Psalm 39, 3 and 4. My heart was hot within me while I meditated. The fire was burning. It increases your grasp of grace. This is a ninth reason. It increases your grasp of grace. 2 Peter three eighteen. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That as you grow in knowledge and you're thinking more of those thoughts, then you're growing in grace. This is the 10th reason. It soothes and comforts your soul. Psalm 119, 52, I have remembered your judgments from of old, O Yahweh, and comfort myself. If you're not used to thinking biblical thoughts and you get whammoed by some trial and you go, oh, I don't even know what to think about. It means you weren't prepared. It generates peace and trust and tranquility. This is an 11th reason. Peace and trust and tranquility. Psalm 104, 33 and 34, I will sing to Yahweh throughout my life. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my musing be pleasing to Him. As for me, I shall be glad in Yahweh. Oh, we just learned something. Singing praises to the Lord is a form of meditation. It's a way we implant those thoughts deeply in us. And there's a twelfth reason. It improves your memory of God's Word. It improves your memory of God's Word. Psalm 119 
Beginning in verse 15, I will muse upon your precepts and look upon your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. That's not a determination. That's a result. It's not, I won't forget. It's, I won't forget because I've been musing on them and looking to your ways and delighting in your statutes. It drives it deeply. And then five bonuses, five bonus reasons. It's medicine for your heart. It's medicine for your heart. Thomas Watson said this, meditation heals the soul of its deadness and earthliness. The second bonus, it provides true spiritual progress. The things you learn don't just passively go in one ear and out the other. They become ingrained in your mind and slowly part of who you are. It also teaches you to think biblically. Just because you own a Bible and listen to sermons doesn't necessarily mean you've trained your mind to think biblically automatically. Meditation gets you in the habit of considering the truth of God as the judge of all of life. There's a fourth bonus. It applies the word more organically. It applies the word more organically. Meditation makes obedience to the precepts of God more who you are, not just things you try to do. And by the way, that's a great benefit to those around you. And one more bonus reason. It fights against the hurried nature of modern life. It fights against the hurried nature of modern life. We want a shortcut for everything. I am convinced there will be little, if any, technology in the millennial kingdom. What do we need technology for? Almost all of it is to save one thing, time, right? And you guys didn't walk here because you didn't have time to get from your job to here and so forth. But there is no substitute for time. Uh, by the way, this also, meditation helps you fight against that notion of idolatry that says my time is valuable. Is it valuable enough to spend more of it with the Lord? That would be a good follow-up question. So what is it that, that causes meditation? What, what initiates it? Like, are, are you going to go home and go, okay, uh, what do I think about? Let me give you three things that cause meditation, that initiate this. The first one is Bible reading. That has to be at the top of the list. This is, meditation is what drives Bible reading into your soul. The second one, Lord's Day sermons. Thomas Manton said this, to hear and not meditate is unfruitful. Thomas Boston, after hearing the sermon, immediately begins, meditate, meditate on it in your hearts and you will find your memories surprisingly strengthened. And then the third initiator or the source of biblical meditation, our, our, our focus for this weekend is personal Bible study. Because what you're going to find is that as you study the word for yourself, you're not going to be struggling for thoughts to think. They're going to be, you're, you're going to wonder, what am I going to do with all of these? You're observing the text. You're seeing truth for yourself. And even at a rudimentary level, this inspires incredible meditation because you found it. You dug it out. It's yours. I told you we would get to how to. Here it is. The basics of biblical meditation. First of all, choose the best time for you. A lot of ink has been spilled on whether you should study the Bible in the morning or the evening. And some quote, the Psalms that say, I will seek you in the morning, and others quote the Psalms that say, I will seek you in the evening. So, choose your time. You need an undistracted place. Distraction is the enemy of meditation. I want you to think of meditation as, you remember when you were a kid and you tried to build that house of playing cards? Meditation is you building a house of cards in your mind about, uh, about various thoughts, and your phone buzzes, it all comes down. 
So undistraction, undistracted place. A relationship amount of time. Rather than saying 20 minutes or 30 minutes, just use relationship as the rule. How much time do I need to really sink my teeth into a conversation with the Lord? I'm going to give you the steps in a useful meditation time, and we're going to repeat these every single time the rest of our time together this weekend. But there's basically five steps. The first one is prayer is the starting point. You're asking the Lord's help and assistance, and this is when you might um, read a, a prayer from the Valley of Vision to get your mind prayerfully into that deeper place. The second step is you're going to choose a small, specific biblical truth from Scripture, from your reading or from your study project, a, a bite-sized truth to think about. In other words, you're not going to say, today I will think on all the family admonitions of Ephesians 5. No, that's not meditation. Instead, you would say, I'm going to think about where Ephesians 5.22, speaking to wives, but really applies to all Christians, that you do, you obey the Lord as to the Lord. That's my meditation, as to the Lord. So you're choosing a small, specific biblical truth. There's a third step. You're going to record some reasonable and logical implications. These, are, these can be implications gleaned from your previous knowledge of Scripture. These can be aha moments as you begin studying a specific passage. Um, these will overlap into steps four and five, which is totally fine. They might even provoke further study because maybe your implications are, you want to make sure they're theologically accurate. Provoking further study is never a bad thing. If you get it wrong, that means you go back and get it right. Reasonable and logical implications. I know this is all theory right now. We're going to do this so many times uh, in reality that it'll be second nature to you. Here's a fourth step. Self-examination questions. This is where it crosses over into ultimate usefulness that maybe you haven't even ever done before. Self-examination questions. Surrendering your will to this particular thought. So let's go back to the Ephesians 5.22 example. I'm, I'm just thinking about what does it mean to obey the Lord as to the Lord? To do, in this particular case, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Plenty of other scriptures, though, that talk about obeying as to the Lord. What are the questions I would ask? What does this mean in daily practice? How would I act in my marriage and family if the Lord were literally walking around giving me commands? Okay, Steve, now do this. Now do this. Is that how I would act? Would I, would I rebel? Or if he was right there giving me commands, would I just obey because I'm as to the Lord? He's right there. How have I failed to act as to the Lord? List 10 ways. Is there anything I need to repent of to those closest to me where I know I have not acted as to the Lord? Those are the types of questions you're asking and you're writing those down and you see how you're beginning to take what you've learned in Scripture, just that one thought as to the Lord and you're beginning to use it as a, as a lens to look at your own life. And then there's a fifth step and this takes it even further. Personal application and prayer. The Puritans were adamant that without personal application, meditation is just spiritual thinking and speculation that's disconnected from your actual life. This is the setting of resolutions. This is the setting of goals that this day, this truth I've meditated upon will be acted upon how. And I'm going to give you some great specifics on that. But that takes meditation to a level of I'm actively changing my own life. So when do you meditate? 
Let me give you the Puritan terms. And both of them will not be, uh, they, they won't be readily understandable in our language. Deliberate meditation. Deliberate meditation um, speaks of times you set aside specifically for Bible, prayer, and meditation. Deliberate doesn't mean I do it on purpose. To the Puritan, deliberate means I do it at the same time every day. That it is a routine. It's deliberate. That just as you set aside time for work and household duties, for maintaining your marriage, for being with your kids, you set aside time from the Lord, for the Lord. Um, I remember one young man saying to me, I just don't have time to read the Bible like I, like I wanted to. And he happened to have really, really white teeth. And I said, well, tell me about all the time you spend on your teeth. And, uh, and so he told me, oh, yeah, I do this and this. I go to this special dentist and I brush nine times a day and I floss with special silk floss straight from China, you know, whatever it takes. And I just said, well, if, you, if the Bible's that important to you, then just don't brush your teeth for a week. And, oh, I can't do that. Can't do that. You do what's important to you, right? That's deliberate meditation. But here's the one that's a little more confusing. The Puritans would talk about occasional meditation. And that's the one we grab onto. Oh, good, I can just do it occasionally. It doesn't mean once in a while. It means spontaneous meditation on a previously learned truth in response to something that's happening at that moment, to an event, some event in your daily life with biblical truth, the eating of a meal, the Lord's rescue from a dangerous situation, the beauty of a mountain range, the sweetness of fellowship with God's people. It's the habit of turning your mind regularly, listen carefully, to interpret the events of your life through the lens of Scripture. Every little thing. Let me give you some examples of occasional meditation in Scripture. One from history, one from creation, and one from an ant. History. Psalm 111, verse 2. Great are the works of Yahweh. They are sought by all who delight in them. You know what I've been meditating on lately? Is the, the, the war between Russia and Ukraine. Because God has overseen 10,000 wars. And they have been for grander purposes. And what it reminds me of is that just like the book of Daniel teaches that all the things that happen in our eyesight, there's a greater invisible purpose behind them. And that gives me confidence. That's history. How about creation? Oh, this is a classic. Psalm 8.3. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, it causes meditation. And the ant. Proverbs 6, go to the ant, O sluggard. I love that word. It's one of my favorite biblical words. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How do you choose a topic for meditation? I'm just going to give you a list. Keep it simple. Keep it assorted. Keep it helpful. And keep it current. If I can make it... If I could say it this way, choose something to meditate on that speaks to you, that you need, that's simple, that's not the same thing over and over again, um, that's helpful for you, and that's, that's current. What will benefit you the most right now? That's what you choose. What did the Puritans meditate on? Let me give you eight topics they generally meditated on. I'll just give you some scripture references to go with them. Your major sin to fight. Haggai 1.5, set your heart to consider your ways. Don't meditate on the things that you're comfortable with. Meditate on the things you know you're having trouble with. The glory of God. 
That's a tough one for us because we don't know how to meditate on the glory of God because we don't know the word of God. But Psalm 145 says, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, I will muse. And maybe going along with that, there's a third thing uh, the Puritans meditate on, the attributes of God. The attributes of God. How about God's sovereignty and his, his providence? Psalm 143.5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you've done. One of my favorites, eternity and future things. You know, uh, a Christian right at the end of his life uh, has no trouble meditating on future things. That's all he wants to think about because that's all he has left, right? How about the stewardship of your life? Meditate on that. Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. The average Puritan family, half of their children did not make it to adulthood. And so they meditated on the brevity and the stewardship of their lives very, very well. Speaking of which, Puritans meditated on their coming death. Psalm 39, 5. You have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing before you. You meditate on that. It's going by. What am I going to do with that time? And then they would meditate on the spiritual value of your life. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Remember I told you at the beginning this would feel overwhelming? Was I right? Yes. I know it's a lot of information, but take time to review this. This will begin to make sense because we're going to actually do these things tomorrow, twice, uh, and then twice on on Saturday. Little meditating makes lean Christians of little life, little strength, little growth, and of little usefulness to others. I'll tell you what I, I dream of. I dream of a church where any woman in this church can say, I see my husband studying the Word of God at home, and that's our culture. That's what I hope happens. Well, next time we'll start walking through Psalm 23. Um, This was the hardest part. We're going to, it'll be easier as we go. So let's pray together and then we'll go over and enjoy some fellowship together. Thank you, Father, for this time. And we've we've laid a lot of uh, concrete foundation tonight. And I pray that as as it uh, firms up and, and becomes clearer in our minds that we would be able to build some firm structures on that in the next coming days. And that our ability to take a passage of Scripture and take it all the way to the point of thinking heavenly, incredible thoughts on those truths we learn. And they change our lives. They change the way we speak. They change the way we think. They change the way we act around those we love the most. I pray, Lord, that that would be the effect of this weekend. Change our hearts to be more and more like Christ. Sanctify us. Speed that process, we pray, so that Christ might be honored as we are a reflection of His glory. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.